This morning we're carrying on our, our series, our, our journey through the Gospel of John, and uh, we're up now to chapter 5. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, um, I think it's page 1009, yep, it is. Uh, and we're going to read the first uh, 30 verses of John, although I am going to be focusing on the, the, the first 18 uh, as we delve into it. The... Uh, eagle-eyed amongst you as we go through will notice that actually on in your church Bibles and in uh, um, what you see on the screen, verse 4 is missing. Hmm, you wonder why on earth have they missed out verse 4? Well, all will become clear soon. I will actually read verse 4 for you then. So, John chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And they waited for the moving of the waters, From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease he had. One who was there, who'd been an invalid for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been there in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I've no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus has slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son of God can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. 
Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Father God, would you open these words up to us now as we study them. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you want to get well? may seem like a bit of a silly question. Um, I try to live by the motto that there's no such thing as a stupid question, only ones that you don't ask. And when I'm with uh, our young people and kind of teach them and and they're a bit shy about asking questions, I say, look, there is no such thing as a silly question. Don't don't be worried about it. And, uh, you know, I have to admit, I was having a look on the internet to see if I could find some examples of stupid questions. And I'm not so sure it's a good motto to live by now, actually, because there are some pretty stupid questions out there. And uh, it makes me worry a little bit for, the, um, for mankind. But, uh, um, you know, Jesus was asking this question that on the face of it might seem silly. You know, if you're sick, if you've been 38 years an invalid and somebody asked you, do you want to be well? You might go, well, yes. But you know what? There's a lot more to Jesus' question than meets the eye. And Jesus kind of has a habit in the word of asking questions that are maybe, on the face of it, a little bit silly, but there's an awful lot behind them. Remember, in the boat, when the storm was raging and uh, Jesus was asleep and uh, his disciples were in a mad panic, in fear of their lives, Jesus woke up and said, why are you afraid? Hello? All this storm raging, we're going to drown. Why do you think we're afraid? Then there's the blind man that Jesus encountered. And Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Well, I'm blind. I want to see, obviously. There was the time when Jesus was in that crowd being jostled and, you know, um, bumped around by uh, everybody. And that woman came up and touched his, uh, his garment. And he said, who touched me? His disciples said, are you crazy, Lord? You know, the crowd's pressing in on you. What do you mean, who touched you? And then there was Jairus' daughter. 
She died and the family were mourning. They were, the funeral was in full flight and Jesus came, on, came along and said, why is everybody mourning and crying? You see, beneath Jesus' apparently silly questions, there's something much deeper. And we're going to have a look today at this encounter at the pool of Bethesda and try and understand a little bit more about what's actually going on in this account and why Jesus would ask this question. Let's have a look at the story. There's a pool of Bethesda and... uh, we see in the story that people were gathered around um, wanting to to get healed, basically. The pool was a big pool. Imagine the baptistry here might be this pool. And there were um, colonnades, pillars, uh, around which people were uh, were, were resting. So all you guys at the back there, you're you're waiting for the the, the waters of the the baptistry to start bubbling and you'd run down. And uh, the reason verse 4 was missed out was that it was added in later by one of the uh, um, kind of scribes who wanted to explain a little bit of background as to why these people were hanging around and waiting for um, uh, the waters to bubble. Because legend has it, and it was just a legend, that from time to time an angel would be sent by God and would stir this pool up. And uh, when the waters uh, kind of bubbled and stirred up, first one in would get, uh, would get healed total legend. You know, God does not use uh, that kind of uh, method to heal people. And so it was missed out from, uh, from scriptures later on because it was uh, seen to be not um, part of the truth. But it was put in there um, by, in some versions, just to explain a little bit of the background to it. Who knows, maybe the, uh, uh, the, the pool was geothermal in some way, and from time to time there'd be uh, um, some kind of bubbling going on um, from geothermal activity. But nevertheless, there was this legend going on that uh, um, uh, the, the, the waters would heal people. And for many years, not only was the uh, legend of the water a legend, But also people used to think, well, the whole thing about these pools at Bethesda were a legend because nobody had ever found them. And for many years, uh, critics of the Bible would say, um, you know, it just proves that stories in the Bible are kind of made up because here's a a story about Jesus' encounter with people, but it was about a, a kind of mythical place. But then in the 1940s, archaeologists were digging... Uh, around the, uh, the city walls in Jerusalem, and they came across a stone tablet with the word Bethesda inscribed on it. And they dug a bit deeper, and they found steps, and they found a pool, and they found the foundations of, of pillars that would form this colonnade. And this pool was um, right by the uh, uh, north wall of the temple, right by the sheep gate that was described in that passage, the place where sheep and lambs would be brought into the temple in preparation for um, Passover sacrifices. So those that uh, scoffed 
at the word of God saying, ah, it's just made up. Suddenly have to eat humble pie because here's historical evidence of the truths of the Bible. You know, Jonathan asked us the question a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, why do, uh, why do you believe in God? And Jonathan's answer was, well, because I see the evidence. And the evidence is there because we can meet God personally. The evidence is there in creation. But the evidence is also there because his word is proven to be trustworthy. What a, a great God we serve that can be trusted in all the levels of detail. But this place was a place where people would gather, and it wasn't just a place um, for uh, invalids looking for healing. You see, if you were sick um, and unable to kind of work in those times, you had no source of income. And this would be a place where people would gather, in effect, to beg. For income, And this was quite a lucrative place to be, particularly at a, a festival time that this was because people would be coming in because it was their duty as Jews to turn up at these festivals and to go to the temple and to make their sacrifices uh, to show that they were good, um, you know, law-keeping uh, Jews. And so as people came in and were, were going in to, through the, the gate into the, uh, the north wall of the temple, they would pass through this area. So it would be a very lucrative place um, for them to beg. And on this one occasion, Jesus is making his way as a good Jew, at probably Passover time. It's not specific about which festival it is, but it's uh, um, probably Passover time. Coming through, passing through on his way into the temple, and he comes through the pool of Bethesda. And he sees all these people um, lying around, hoping for the stirring of the waters. Now, Jesus could have gone in there and healed all those people. But he didn't. He singled one person out when he found out that this one guy had been there for 38 years. That's a long time, isn't it? 38 years. I don't know quite what the average lifespan of people was in that time, but I'm guessing it was probably no more than about 45. And we know that this guy wasn't... uh, invalid from birth because we see later on that Jesus says, see you're well again, implying that he was well before. But for 38 years, this guy had been staying there and Jesus singles him out and has a chat with him. Now, again, I don't know why Jesus didn't heal the others. He may have healed some of them. We don't know. You know, Jesus was criticized for doing all this stuff on a Sabbath. But when we kind of see the disease and sickness and suffering that's around us in the world today, we might ask ourselves the question, why doesn't God heal everybody? Why does he single out certain people for healing? It's a question that is almost impossible to answer, but if we look a little bit deeper at what's behind the question that Jesus asks this man, maybe we'll get 
a bit of a hint. So here's Jesus encountering this man. And he asks him the question, do you want to get well? And what was the man's response? You'd think it would be an obvious one, yes. But the man actually says, well, I've got no one to help me. And you could almost imagine Jesus saying, that wasn't the question I asked. Do you want to get well? But when the waters bubble, I've got nobody to take me down and get in. It's almost like the man is trying to recruit Jesus as a helper to to get him into the water when uh, the bubbles stir. But the man evades the question. He never answers, yes, I want to be made well. All he ends up doing is making excuses. And I wonder if we look at that question from a different perspective. I think Jesus is talking more about the man's spiritual well-being than his physical well-being. And I'll explain a little bit more about that later on, but just bear with me for the moment. And I wonder if we think about our relationship with God. Is God asking us the question, do we want to get well? And do we make excuses? You know, the Bible is full of people who make excuses about, uh, you know, Moses who said, I can't uh, represent you, God, I can't speak properly. And maybe we end up making excuses when Jesus asks us, do you want to be well? Maybe it goes something like this. God, you know, I can't, I can't do that. I'm not, that's not my skills. It's not the kind of person you've made me to be. You know, I can't help doing that because that's just the environment I'm in. I keep doing that because that's the thing that I've always done and I, I, I just can't change. And I wonder whether the kind of excuse-making that this man was coming up with resonates um, with us. Because he was a man who'd been 38 years relying on handouts, people giving things to him. He had no means, um, no experience, no practice in making a living for himself. The question, do you want to get well, was a pretty significant one for him. Because if he got well, he would then have to start making it on his own. He couldn't um, rely on handouts for people. He couldn't rely on just turning up and everything happening for him. Some of you know I um, did jury duty uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, it was a real eye-opener for me. There was a defendant who... uh, um, I won't go into all the details, but um, he was bizarrely defending this uh, um, claim of dangerous driving against him. And he didn't, um, he didn't deny dangerous driving, 
but his whole case was built around excuses why he had to drive dangerously in that particular circumstance. It was so bizarre listening to a guy trying to make every excuse for why it was okay for him to break the law. Very, very strange. In the end, we found him guilty. But But I wonder what kind of people we are. Do we make excuses all the time um, for things? Or do we accept that actually... You know, God has a plan. God can do all kinds of things through us despite what we think our own capabilities are. And what does Jesus do to this man? He doesn't listen to any of his excuses. He says, get up and pick up your mat. (laughs) Stop making excuses. Get up now. You know, and it's bizarre because this guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. And yet, what does he do? Almost shocked into getting to his feet and standing up. And he picks up his mat. Now, there's two things that uh, I want to bring out in this. Um, First of all, the man had to look in the right place for his healing. Previously, he was um, dependent on the, the waters. That was his hope. And that had failed him for 38 years. But now he hears the command of the Lord Jesus Christ and has to um, uh, respond. Remember the location of this uh, pool at Bethesda. It was right next door to the temple. The temple in those days was the place where it was felt that that's where God dwelt. That was the dwelling place of Almighty God. Yet here were all these people just a stone's throw away of the temple looking for healing, when actually they were looking in the wrong place. I wonder if sometimes we're kind of looking in the wrong place for wholeness. Because we don't trust that Jesus can make us well. We don't trust that Jesus can make us whole. Where is it that you're looking? I get the mickey taken out of me by, uh, by Emma because I am a terrible looker. If I ever got to find something, I'm just hopeless. And uh, the kids say, uh, have you just been doing dad looking or have you looked properly? So I'll say to Emma, have you seen that important piece of paper that I put on that desk and I wish you wouldn't tidy things away because now I can't find it anymore? And she says, well, would you like me to come and look? Yes, please, because I've looked everywhere and I can't find it. So she walks straight up and there it is. (laughs) Do you know, sometimes, I don't know whether it's a man thing or what, but I just can't see things that are right in front of me. And here was this man, the temple was right in front of him. The place that he could encounter God was right in front of him, and yet he was looking and putting his hope in bubbling water. Sometimes we look in the wrong places, don't we? 
We look in the things that we have, the things that we can do in our own strength, rather than what God wants us to do. But when Jesus commanded him, he had to obey. He had to take action. And this is the second thing I want to bring out around these commandments that uh, Jesus told him to get up and pick up his mat. This guy could have just said no. He could have just stayed there. He could have doubted what was possible. But he didn't. He got up. Being asked to pick his mat up was highly symbolic because he could have left it there, a bit like a German leaving a towel out on the beach, reserving his place for later on. But Jesus told him to pick up his mat because he didn't want him to return to his old way of doing things. When Jesus tells us to change and when Jesus seeks to make us whole, there should be no going back. But we have to take action. If we don't kind of metaphorically pick up that mat and burn our bridges of the things that are holding us back from that wholeness, that relationship with God, then there's that risk of going back. And so we see it later on when Jesus encounters this, uh, this man again in the temple. Because what does he say to him? Stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. You've got to leave the old behind. You've got to pick up that mat. Often in the Bible, when God seeks to meet with people, he requires action to be taken. Remember the story of uh, Naaman uh, with his leprosy? He was told that he had to go and bathe in the River Jordan, that dirty river. But when he obeyed, he was healed. The blind man that Jesus met was told to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Only then was he given his sight back. He had to take action. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. There is an action required. Jesus also said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. There's an action required. Jesus said also, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This relationship with God is not a one-way thing. Whilst God, yes, freely gives of his grace, his forgiveness, and of salvation, and there's nothing we can do to help that, God still requires something of us. He requires us to repent, to turn away from those things that are holding us back from a relationship with him. He requires us to take action, just as this um, uh, invalid man was required to take action. We're required to take action to um, see the fruits of the Spirit grow and nurture in our lives. It's our responsibility. Whilst God provides all that we need, we still have to take action. I wonder how often is it that 
actually we quite like Jesus working in some areas of our lives, but actually we quite enjoy doing this stuff, and we're quite comfortable about it, and we don't want to let that stuff go. So Jesus, you can deal with this, that's great, thank you for that, but actually not the other bit. When Jesus asks the question, do you want to be well? He's not just asking about your physical well-being. It's about, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be the way that you're supposed to be in your relationship with me? Do you want to have that closeness? This man, though, he obeys Jesus' command, he picks up his mat, and he walks, and he's encountered by the Jews. Oh, dear. They completely miss the wonderful miracle that's taken place, and all they do is say, what are you doing carrying your mat on a Sabbath? Unbelievable, isn't it? That they can nitpick. How often is it that we kind of miss the bigger picture of what God's doing? because we complain about um, the things that we think God should be doing in our lives, but he's not doing. Let's focus on the wonderful things that he has done. But what does the man do? He's confronted by the Jews, and he's, uh, uh, you know, said, why, he's asked, why are you carrying this mat? His reaction is, it wasn't me. (laughs) The man who healed me told me to do it. You know, this man hasn't learned accountability for himself yet. And it's kind of not surprising, being 38 years, not really being accountable for yourself. But he puts the blame on Jesus. I'll say that again. He puts the blame on Jesus. I think little does he know that actually, in putting the blame on Jesus... That's exactly demonstrating what Jesus is prepared to take. The Lamb of God who entered into the temple through the sheep gate, the place for the sacrifice, is taking the blame for us all in the sacrifice that he paid for us on the cross. Jesus is willing to take that blame. What a wonderful picture. But still, we have to learn accountability. Whilst this man hadn't really kind of learned the lesson in putting uh, the blame on Jesus, we have to learn to take accountability for our own lives. It's not just good enough to uh, kind of accept um, you know, forgiveness in one area, but keep on doing the things that are wrong. You know, the world is, uh, is full of blame, as I said. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Aaron blamed the fire for the uh, golden calf popping out. And here's this man blaming somebody else. Paul himself, in Romans 7, said, uh, 
you know what? The good that I want to do, I don't do. And um, that which uh, um, I, want, uh, I don't want to do, I end up doing. But if we carry on deliberately sinning, if there's no repentance, then there's no forgiveness. We have to take accountability. And when Jesus asked that question, do you want to be made well, he's talking about this man's spiritual well-being. Why do I say that? Because when Jesus meets him again in the temple, and it's great that this guy has now gone into the temple, Jesus says to him, see, you're well again, but stop sinning, or else something worse might happen to you. And you might say, well, what could be worse than 38 years of being an invalid? Well, actually, eternity without God is far worse than 38 years, an invalid. And Jesus is going to the heart of the matter now in his question of, do you want to be made well? He's saying, if you want to be well, if you want things to be well with your soul, then you need to stop sinning. I've dealt with your physical thing. Now, I want to deal with the spiritual side. So stop sinning. And we don't know what particular sin um, Jesus was referring to here. But it was important enough for Jesus to give him that warning. And maybe you're here um, today wondering, well, okay, how does this apply to me? We don't see uh, many invalids behind that portico waiting to dash and come and dive into the bubbling waters. But maybe there's things that are impacting you in a different way. You know, maybe emotionally you feel disabled because of some past or present abuse. Maybe you're held captive by fear or an addiction or habitual sins. Maybe you're so preoccupied with yourself and, uh, and your personal problems that you can't kind of see a way through it. But just as Jesus encountered this man, he comes to deal with all those things. And he comes and asks you, do you want to be made well? Because Jesus came that we might have life and might have it in all its fullness. In Luke 4, Jesus was quoting from uh, the prophet Isaiah when he read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God doesn't want us sitting around under those, uh, those porticos um, just waiting, putting our hope in something that will never um, come to pass. He wants us to be that new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. But to do that, we have to respond to Jesus' command. We have to get up. We have to pick up that metaphorical mat. Turn our back on the things that uh, have held us back. Turn our backs on the things that... Uh, um, are not according to God's plans and purposes. So I wonder what your response is today to that question 
Do you want to be well? We're going to spend uh, a bit of time just reflecting on that as we sing uh, a couple of songs. And uh, I just want you to use this time to reflect on that question and think through, are there any things that uh, are kind of holding you back? Any of those uh, metaphorical mats that uh, you keep turning back to that keep you from being whole in Jesus? Jesus comes. He wants to bring you wholeness. He wants to make you well. There was never any doubt in Jesus' question that he could be made well. He just had to say the word, and that man was healed. Jesus wants to do that for us as well today. He wants us to be whole. He wants us to be made well in him.